Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today's episode, we have Huda Al-Sadda, who is an author, an activist, and a scholar focused on women's issues in Egypt as well as the broader region. Her work is really, really instrumental. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope to see you at one of our upcoming events. Go to africa.com slash RSVP to attend. And by the way, if you want to listen to the full uncut version of this podcast, go to our YouTube page. You'll be able to see the podcast as well as listen to the full version. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad that you all navigated the daylight savings, which uh, seems to be giving people some hard time. Um, happy that you're here. My name is Mikey Mahenna. I am honored to introduce our special guest, Huda al Sadda, is the co-founder and chair of uh, the Board of Trustees of the Women and Memory Forum. She's a professor of English and comparative literature at Cairo University, a feminist and an activist for women's rights. She previously held a chair in the study of contemporary Arab world at Manchester University and was a co-director of the Center for Advanced Study of the Arab World in the UK. She was a Carnegie visiting scholar at Georgetown University in 2014 and a visiting scholar at the Asfari Institute at the American University of Beirut in 2017. In 1992, she co-founded and edited Hajar, an interdisciplinary journal in women's studies published in Arabic. She was a member of the 50 committee uh, that the 50 person committee that drafted the Egyptian constitution endorsed in a referendum in 2014 and uh, was a coordinator of the Freedoms Rights Committee in the Constitutional Assembly. In 1997, she co-founded and is currently chairperson of the Board of Trustees in the Women and Memory Forum, a research organization which focuses on reading Arab, um, rereading Arab culture history. Excuse me, from a gender-sensitive perspective, she's a member and editorial uh, member of the editorial board of the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies (JMEWS), a member of the advisory board of the Durham. Uh, a modern language series, associate editor of the online edition of the Encyclopedia of Women and Muslims Cultures, member of the board of directors of the Global Fund for Women, a member of the advisory board of Raida, uh, uh, member of the Arab Families Working Group, and a member of the board of trustees for the Sawiris Cultural Award. Huda, welcome to Afikra. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on. I was telling you before the event that I am um, uh, so intimidated and uh, enamored by the amount of really valuable work that you're doing. So I'm really honored that you're on the series. Thank you for saying that. I mean, that's very kind of you. Thank you. So as I just read in your bio, you, you know, your work focuses on gender studies, uh, women, memory. These words keep on coming up. For those of us who didn't study uh, gender studies, are not uh, working in that space, there's a term that I've uh, I've heard you talk about and I've read in your work that is not a term that I think a lot of people are aware of. And because your work seems to be uh, consumed with the role of women in society and in a nation and in the government, um, and sort of how how we how we sort sort of should be thinking about that. Can you help me understand what this term state feminism is in its many forms? Um, yes, I'll try. Yeah, um, please. So, yeah, I mean, I'll begin by saying that state feminism as a, as a term, as a phrase, has many different implications in different contexts. So if you think of, no, Nord, I mean, Sweden, Norway, you know, Nordic countries uh, north of um, 
particularly in Europe, it's actually a positive, it has, it carries positive connotations. It simply denotes the efforts by states to advocate for women's rights and to be actively involved in issuing laws that protect women. So state feminism is a, can be a good thing. In the Arab world, it's a contested term. Why? Because it's often, um, it, it's often about manipulation and co-optation by states, by undemocratic states uh, of the women of social movements. So it has this implication of intervention, uh, control, nationalizing civil society, perhaps um, um, controlling and monopolizing, speaking on behalf of women, pushing aside, excluding women rights activists who are independent. So, so it's a term that has different connotations in different contexts. Is it also a term that um, has changed over time in the Arab world? So if, if we were having a conversation 50 years ago, would it change both sort of longitudinally as well as geographically if we're having a conversation in Morocco versus a conversation in Sudan versus a conversation in Saudi? Can you sort of give a little context about the, dy the dynamic nature of this, this term? Yes, thank you. I mean, this is a very good point. Thank you for making that. Yes, so there are important differences between Arab countries and between different historical periods. So, I mean, Tunis is a good example. So in Tunis, for example, there's been a very active state feminism, perhaps still contested, you know, with, I mean, because I, mean, I can't just say, I have a blanket statement where state feminism in a particular country was, you know, functioned better than other countries. But I would say that there have been, if you think of Egypt, for example, there have been different moments of state feminism. Um, I would say that in the 60s and the, the 60s, there was uh, an overpowering state feminism where it was the state who absolutely controlled uh, speaking on behalf of women and the 70s, perhaps. 80s and 90s, we see the beginnings and the emergence of independent women's groups who, were, who competed with state feminism or who at least contested discourses by state feminism, and they managed to have independent uh, knowledge production advocating for particular issues that were not necessarily advocated for by the state. So there are different periods. Um, and then, of course, you have the phenomenon of national councils of women, which is a phenomenon of the 21st century. And again, the functioning of these national councils or you know, entities that advocate for women in specific contexts, again, have different functions. But definitely, we can argue that independent feminist groups manage to collaborate and cooperate with state feminists in Morocco to act to produce and uh, to produce a very, um, it's not a perfect, but uh, a good step and uh, a good family law, if you like. I mean, a better version of family law that uh, compared to the one that was in existence. So yes, there have been moments when there is cooperation between feminists and state feminists, independent feminists and state feminists. There have been moments when people have shifted Ground. So, you know, um, feminists can actually take on or accept uh, positions in the state and use their positions to advocate for women. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nuanced story. It's, uh, it's not black and white. Um, and yes, definitely many, many women have managed to uh, interact with states and to, um, you know, have positions and use these positions to advocate for women. So it's not a black and white story, but it's, it's a contested term. Uh, especially in the third world in undemocratic contexts. So 
Um, you're calling us from Cairo right now. I'd love to sort of uh, go back to some of your formative years to understand um, when you first became interested in this work and why. Um, is there a, a, a story that sort of jumps to mind that helped tie you in and sort of rope you into studying this early on? It's a good question. You know, there's always, I mean, there's, I mean, I'm always asked the question in a much more perhaps uh, forward, aggressive way. Let me just say, this is not what you're doing, but uh, just, I mean, somehow there's this assumption that for, you know, to be a feminist, you have to have like this really intense experience of discrimination. Reality. Well, I mean, is, even if, if you're going to become a cardiologist. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's a, it's a good question and it's important. And um, no, I always say that I had a very privileged uh, upbringing. I come from a very liberal family. There was I did not suffer from any discrimination, you know, in the family, which is wonderful. And even when I, as an academic, and this is a story I like to tell, really, I mean, I joined the Department of English and the Department of English, well, there's, you know, if you look at Cairo University, it's an interesting, um, you, there's an interesting observation about how, um, because of my times, there was this socialist regime and the way you're appointed uh, as an academic and you get a position at university, it was just uh, by, on the grounds of your exam results, really. So, I mean, if you're first, you're appointed. If you're, if you're second, you're not. Um, so regardless of gender, which, is, which, which leads to the situation where my department, the Department of English, which is, you know, I'm very proud to belong to, consisted of really strong women academics. Uh, and um, I, again, as a, the beginning of my career, there was no discrimination against me. I didn't really have to fight uh, or to try and jump hurdles to become professor. Uh, that's the reality. Um, so having said that, what, when, when uh, I mean, I think I, I came to feminism through uh, my reading of literary texts. Um, again, I owe this to my department uh, uh, and the fact that I read a lot of uh, literature by men and women. Uh, I always mention, I remember reading Edward Said, um, really, I mean, like 1979, a year after his book was published. And it struck me how this idea of the feminization of the weak, the, 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 the colonized, the weak link in any relationship and how, um, I mean, this really struck a chord, you know, how all of the, if you like, derogatory um, uh, terms that are, you know, really, really uh, that are uh, in, related to women uh, were actually used against the colonized, us Arabs, for example, in this uh, colonial relationship. Can you, can you give an example of this for, for those? Yes, I mean, yeah. so I talked about how the man, the, the colonized man was uh, feminized. So uh, the, you know, the white colonizer was rational, but of course the Arab, the colonized Arab was emotional. I mean, these are all, this is exactly how uh, a binary opposition is constructed between men and women. So, you know, men are rational, women are emotional. So they can't, um, make good judgments about their lives and therefore they need women, the men's you know, guidance and, and supervision and so on. The exact same logic was used to justify colonialism. The exact same logic was used to um, um, justify colonization. For me, this was really eye-opening and it made me reconsider you know, stereotypes about, uh, about women, myself. Um, but also I think that um, 
I, I, and again, my experience told me that I, I was perfectly rational and emotional, nothing wrong with emotional, but perfectly rational. And I didn't, um, so I could immediately um, log into this, um, this comparison. And that was very, uh, I think that really influenced my, my thinking. I read, uh, you know, women writers, Latifa Zayed, Laila Bal. I mean, you know, there are many, many great women writers who wrote about the relationship to the world, questioned patriarchal societies. These were all very uh, powerful, um, I think, influences on my life and my uh, my career. So I want to talk about. I was mentioning this to you before the call. I'm always interested in sort of activist movements, social justice movements, mm. whose um, sort of, you know, social justice, you know, you're chasing, you're, you're chasing a horizon in many ways, every single, every single movement. The latest generation of activists can reflect on their, their predecessors in many different ways. They can reflect on them as saying, uh, we're, we're standing on your shoulders and you pushed the ball up so far and now we're taking it from here and we understand we were chasing a different horizon, although maybe your goals were you know, not as long, uh, as sort of long-term as our goals. Sometimes they're critical of predecessors and critical of short-sightedness or something that they think was actually detrimental. I'm curious about how you as an activist um, reflect on some of your predecessors in Egypt. I mean, thank you for the question, really, because it's, um, as you say, there are different, um, gen- I mean, different people have different uh, approaches to this question. But for me, I see uh, generate this, this, the, the link with previous generations. This generational, um, uh, you know, relationship is really a, a, a question of continuity and accumulative knowledge and building on each. I mean, and learning from previous experiences, but obviously trying to do something different. Otherwise, we'd be doing the same thing forever, which is not, you know, which is not normal. Um, so, absolutely, I see that. We have to we 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 build on what was what on previous generations' uh, uh, knowledge production um, achievements, but we also differ from them, and we have the right to be critical of perhaps some of the things they did, which I mean respectfully critical. That's there's no uh, problem in that, um, because obviously we need to learn from mistakes, and I'm sure we're doing mistakes. We're making mistakes as well, and I expect you know the younger generation are also. Uh, I hope learning from these mistakes and also uh, looking at them uh, critically. Uh, the Fateh is a, I'm very happy that we, we managed to republish this particular journal. It's the first women's journal in the Arab world to be published end of the 19th century. And um, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm, I, I just need to signal here that at Women in Memory, we're very concerned and interested in the preservation of our tradition and one of the motives for actually republishing it is that we were not able to find a single copy of this magazine in uh, libraries in Egypt. Uh, they were either, I don't know what happened to them, but they were not available. And I photocopied this, this journal from, the, the, I have to say, the library of Yale. And I, and I say that in the introduction because um, the, we need a concerted effort to preserve our tradition, to preserve our history, and to make sure that we are able to tell the story to future generations. This is a perfect time to talk about um, Women in Memory, and which is an organization uh, that you helped co-found in 1995. And so part of the mission statement of Women in Memory, which I have on the screen for those, those of you who are listening to the podcast later, 
uh, aims to contribute effectively to the production and dissemination of alternative knowledge about women in the Arab region. It also aims to reread Arab tradition and cultural history in order to create a new cultural and social awareness. So it's almost as if there is this uh, relationship be between the way we remember uh, women in the region and the way we imagine women going forward. And I'm wondering if, if there are some examples of that where there has been a rereading and a reimagination. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think a good example would be um, the way tradition, for example, or at least uh, representations, very, very selective representations of our tradition, or let's, let's, and let, just to be focused, our Islamic tradition, as the way it's, it's used to argue that women, um, you know, have very specific roles to play, and that somehow, you know, they're, um, you know, entering society, taking on, you know, participating in professions, becoming doctors and engineers and teachers and so on, is it's, um, a feature of the modern period and somehow uh, in an influence of the West on, uh, on the Arab world. And of course, I mean, one of the things that my colleagues, this is, I have two colleagues in, at Women in Memory, Umayyam Abu Bakr and Huda Saadi, whose um, work is focused on um, rereading the early Islamic period and the, the position of women. And they have published, uh, and they have managed to, they have gone on this, I call it excavation project in old manuscripts, in old bi biographical texts, looking for mentions of women, very, very brief mentions. And then from these and collecting these brief mentions, they make a story and they, they're able to create an, a story about this, a, a very a, a particular women, know more about them. And they've published about women who were medical doctors, who practiced medicine, women who were faqihat in the early Islamic period, uh, teachers, of course, architects. So, so basically deconstructing this idea that somehow, you know, women in the public sphere is a feature of the modern period, the 20th century, and an effect of colonial intervention. It is not true. So, I mean, this particular project, like, you know, going through early Islamic period, but, you know, going and wading through the manuscripts and uh, many, many texts that don't really mention women directly, but then creating these stories, I think is important in um, rethinking our history and our relationship to our history, but also our visions of the future and our ideas about identities, for example. What does it mean, uh, you know, what, what, what does it mean to have, what, what is the Arab identity anyway? What is the Egyptian identity? What is the Lebanese identity? How is that a construct? And, uh, and how is this related to the past? And what does it mean for the future? You know, if you'll allow me, I'm, I'm really curious about something. You know, you've been in this space thinking about thinking about these issues for for a few decades at this point. I'm really curious, like if you were speaking to 1995 Huda, giving her giving her advice on the work that she's doing, both as a scholar as well as an activist, what are some of the lessons learned that you would offer? I mean, you know, okay. I mean, I love your questions, Mike, I have to say. So I like it because, um, you know what, I would say, follow your dreams. You know, when we decide, when we, the idea of women in memory, you know, in the, the early 1990s, you know, we had, there were, we had a lot of ambition. I had this, I had this sort of, you know, vision for a future. I wanted to do this. I was hoping that we'd be able to, 
I mean, the idea of women in memory when we started was so, seemed to be so difficult. And we managed, I mean, I, I have to say I'm very proud of women in memory. So, I mean, I can't be, uh, you know, I'm going, I'm going to be pre- to pretend, you know, any kind of, try to any kind of false modesty here, but, uh, but to say that I am really proud of women in memory as an idea, as a, a contribution to the feminist scene, as a model, I think, um, for, you know, how we can practice feminism and interact with, uh, with activists, with academic circles, with, uh, with state institutions, you know, we've managed to survive quite a few hurdles. Um, so I think, um, yes, definitely, you know, idea, good, I, I mean, ideas always start with a dream that looks really difficult to, uh, to get hold of, but, uh, but, you know, dreams do come true. Yeah. Do you think, um, just thinking about your, I'm always interested in speaking to educators because I'm interested in the people they're educating. If you think about the sort of generations of students that you've had over the, over the years, has there been a tick in one direction or another, or has it fluctuated? Has it oscillated? Have they changed over time? Are they asking the same exact questions or has there been an evolution or devolution or revolution in their questions? I'm not sure how to, I'm trying to think here. I mean, things have changed. Okay, I like to think of 2011 as a turning point. And it's a turning point for, for, I mean, on many levels. It's not just for, you know, on feminism. It's a turning point because uh, this was, um, you know, there was a revolutionary moment and revolutions uh, raise existential questions, but they also raise... Uh, but they also um, allow people to really ask difficult questions and break taboos. And I think many taboos have been broken in 2011, just because there were, for, for a while, obviously, you know, things have changed. But, you know, for a, for a certain period of time, there was a space, the, the political spaces were opened, and people were able to discuss issues seriously, as opposed to, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, fencing with each other, ideological fencing that doesn't really take you anywhere. But you know, some issues were discussed seriously. One of those issues, I think, was had to do with gender, and for example, um, sexual violence against women. You know, before 2011, this was really a huge taboo. You don't talk about sexual violence against women. You talk about other forms of violence. Post 2011, the, the taboo was broken. So. Um, so I think in many ways, yes, this generation, definitely post-2011, where the media was opened up for a while, now they have access to social media. And really social media, I think, is has an impact on uh, young yeah. generations in ways that we haven't seen. I mean, obviously, my generation, mm-hmm. we had to, you had to know the person to be able to know something. But now it's different. Huda, I think we're going to have to postpone a broader conversation about all of this amazing work that you've done, unless there's uh, questions in the chat. As I mentioned from the very beginning, you've done an enormous amount of work. And so it's impossible to cover everything in, in only one hour. Um, so maybe you'll, you'll humor us in the future and uh, come back on the series to talk more specifically about some of these uh, publications in the books. Uh, but let's jump to the quick Q&A um, and ask you these four quick questions. And then we'll open up to the chat uh, for questions from the audience. What are you reading or watching right now? Okay, right now, um, so, okay, so two books that, that were published this year. 
Uh, I'm very, I love uh, historical novels. I love biographical, autobiographical stories. So I'm, I've just finished reading actually uh, a novel slash bio, autobiography called Jakub. And it's written by one of my colleagues at Cairo University. He's a professor of history, Hamad uh, Afifi. And, um, and he, it's a story of Jakub, who's this very controversial figure in our history, because he's been called a traitor, because he was seen to have uh, colluded, uh, cooperated with the, the French invasion of Egypt. So the French campaign, he was one of. So, but but then Afifi, uh, the story is about the student, the history student, you know, Muhammad Afifi, basically, uh, and his um, being haunted by the um, being haunted by this figure and following his story and trying to construct a very a more nuanced story of this of this figure that's not black and white that's not you know either a traitor or a nationalist which is how history is usually written so i find that very interesting it's really it's, it's a very short novel but very very interesting um i i i've also read, let me just mention very quickly i've also just finished reading uh, an autobiography by Azza Fahmi, who's really this very famous uh, designer of jewelry, but it's a, it's a really good. It's a fantastic read because it's it's about her, you know, the her beginnings and mm. her apprenticeship uh, in Khan al Khalili, a world dominated by men. How she learned the trade, how she became really this top designer of, of a particular craft, how she preserves Maybe. the craft. So these are the two things I've just. Okay, read. I love them. Okay, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? So to pick, I'll just, I think I'll say Marie Assad. Marie Assad is this, again, pioneering feminist. I had the, she died a couple of years ago. Um, she's a trailblazer, if you can say, I mean, you know, definitely a trailblazer. Um, she joined the World Council of Churches when she was very young and worked on feminist theology, introduced feminism to the World Council of Churches, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, at, at a time when no one was talking about feminism. Uh, she's then, she's an environmentalist. She um, helped create this uh, important organization that works with the Zabalin, so she works on environment. She led a task force to combat uh, FGM, female genital mutilation in Egypt. And more importantly, she was a fantastic mentor. She was this wonderful, wonderful woman who supported, gave guidance, was so, so modest, uh, provided space, space for a lot of us to, you know, meet and so on. So she's just, she was just a fantastic person. Uh, I'm happy to pay tribute to her. Okay, so what I'll do is I'm going to read one of Samira's questions. Um, where do you see your work going next? What are the goals for the Women and Memory Forum um, in the future? I think, I mean, it's, thank you. We've had, um, I mean, we're, go, we're, we're going through a transitional phase. I mean, we've done that before. There have been, you know, we started 95, so there have been phases. I think our next phase is how to um, become... Um, a feminist cultural hub, uh, you know, how to uh, use our, um, I mean, you know, our history and so on in making, providing a space for feminist discussions, um, hosting the gen different generation between different generations, um, 
I, I mean, I would like to continue some of our, I think we will continue some of our signature projects, you know, which is the Oref History Archive. We do a lot of, um, uh, you know, education workshops, introducing feminist concepts and theories to um, university students, but also to NGO workers, you know, in the, you know, in civil society. So we have a couple of what we call signature projects that we would like to continue. Definitely we want to expand our library. We started this, we have a library, which is not bad, it's decent, but I would love to have a better library. Everything that's been written about women and gender in the Arab world, because it does not exist anywhere. It's difficult to find sources. Okay, we are over time. So I, I want to respect your time. Huda, thank you so much for um, really generously sharing your time and perspective with us. I've learned a, a ton from you and I, I expect to continue continually learn even more as I dive into your work. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the series. Thank you, Mikey. Pleasure being with you in this conversation. And thank you for all the questions. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. Bye, everybody. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com, where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. <laughs>